Hi, my name is Kendall Donaldson. I'm a professor of clinical ophthalmology at the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute in Miami, Florida, where I practice cataract, refractive, and corneal disease. And I'm John Vukic. I am in private practice in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I have a practice that is really focused on refractive outcomes in cataract surgery, as well as development of new technologies. And today we're going to be talking about the modern refractive lens exchange practice. So it's nice to be here, John, to talk oh, about this uh, with you. Thank you, Kendall. Uh, you know, this is it's where we're all going. We talk about, like, what is the next step in the evolution of our profession, which is exciting because there's always something new. You know, that's why I love ophthalmology is that it, it is rare that we go six months or certainly not a year where there isn't something that we get to learn about that can make our patients' lives better, with better technology that you know, lets us allow the correction to be more accurate, ways in which we can refine corrections. It's an evolving technology-driven specialty that uh, I find really nourishing. Yeah, well, I think we're very lucky to be in this field because we can work with industry and all of the technologies just continues to change. All patients ask me all the time, they're like, is this a good time to have my surgery or is something better going to come down the pipeline? I say, you know, something's always coming down the pipeline constantly. So there's no one point in time where things are static. You know, this is constantly in evolution. And so we're really fortunate. And we have to keep up with all of this stuff and keep learning new techniques and incorporating new technology and training our staff and ourselves and our patients for that matter. So one of the things that is now available, and I think there'll be increasing options available, is the pharmacologic treatment of presbyopia. Uh, and an, a, a new use for a medication that we're familiar with for decades. Uh, how do you think that's gonna influence our patients' interest in refractive lens exchange or our patients' expectation to reverse what has been that dysfunctional lens syndrome that they start to experience? Yeah, you know, that, that's a great question, John, and I don't have all the answers, but I think it's going to be an interesting six months. And obviously the first presbyopia correcting uh, drop was just approved by Allergan and Vuity just a month ago. So it's a little too early to see how that's going to affect our practice, but how we think it will affect our practice is patients are going to start learning about this presbyopia process. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times I'll have patients in their 40s come in and they're losing their near vision. They don't know what's going on and they don't understand that this is a normal part of life and now we have to do something about it, whether it be reading glasses. And now, of course, we actually have an option that we can offer them as far as drops. So I think it's going to be an educational process for the patients, which I think will be helpful um, from a drop perspective. But also, you know, as we, they, they learn about this and eventually they'll get to the age where they're thinking about a surgical intervention, they'll have a better understanding of presbyopia going into that. So I've used it for several patients uh, and definitely had patients who just said, whatever I just put in my eye, I see better than, better than I didn't realize how much difficult I was having. And, and they absolutely love it. I think it's kind of a gateway drug, to be honest with you. I think there'll be a point at which they experience that there can be improvement. And, they, and they'll use it for a period of time. And you're right, we don't know how long that'll be. Uh, but I think it will sort of open that 
concept or understanding that, well, maybe there's something I can do to make it better, I suspect it's going to drive the enthusiasm for fractal lens exchange. Yeah, and I think, as you said, they might not use this, want to use this drop forever, and right. then they might start to pursue these other more permanent options that can help them to maintain some of that near vision. So, you know, I think it is a nice gateway drug. And I don't know how many of these patients will be coming into my practice per se, but with my optometrist and fostering that relationship between optometrists and general ophthalmologists and us as cataract surgeons, you know, I think it'll help that continuity and that relationship as the patient goes through the process of presbyopia, where they start with the drops early on in that process of presbyopia and then move on to some of these other more surgical interventions that we do. Yeah, I think the, the busy surgeons, ophthalmologists, generally don't see the presbyopes. Uh, and so I think this is going to become a commonly used medication, uh, at least offered by optometry. And that's where the synergy between our two professions uh, overlap is, is quite real. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, but I think that working with, if you have referral optometrists, working with them to, to let them know that, okay, now there's uh, an interest in a patient who is willing to proactively try to improve their uncorrected visual acuity. Uh, and let's work together to see if there's maybe the next step that needs to be taken. Yeah, and there might be other nice uses for this drop as we go forward. You know, I'm thinking um, right now we're using it in the 40 to 55-year-old presbyopic patient, but what about some of those LASIK patients that maybe we corrected for distance in both mm -hmm. eyes and they're in their 40s, right. or even some of our monofocal um, IOL patients that we want to give a little extra, you know, range of vision there. So, you know, I think there might be other uses and we'll probably experiment with that and learn a lot over the next six months, but it's an exciting time. And I know pretty soon the consumers are going to start to learn more about it. So I haven't had many patients coming in asking about it yet. I find that we've been doing more teaching about it at this point mm -hmm. as opposed to them uh, coming in asking for it because they're not aware. So it's more an education process right now. But that will evolve, I think, pretty quickly. So we're at 20 years plus for LASIK. And there are a number of patients, just like you alluded to, whose LASIK wore off, whatever that patient thinks that means. Uh, but yes. we know what it means. The cornea didn't change. It's their lens that is now going through that dysfunctional lens syndrome. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are the patients who are coming back asking for a LASIK enhancement. Do you talk to them about refractive lens exchange? And when does it become a cataract? And when is it a refractive lens exchange? Yeah, I find that that is a very difficult group of patients to talk to. Mm -hmm. And especially as you start to see just a little early cataract and you know it's in evolution and they're starting to get that myopic shift and they're talking about their LASIK not working. And I would say in the past, I didn't really feel comfortable or like talking about those patients because I wasn't quite ready to do a refractive lens exchange and I didn't really feel like I had a great thing to offer them quite yet, especially if they had had hyperopic LASIK. Right, so, right. Uh, you know, they had some higher order aberrations. I wasn't going to feel comfortable putting a multifocal lens in. Um, so I think we have great options for these patient styles. So maybe, you know, using one of the presbyopia drops for a while, maybe even an IC8 a little bit earlier, mm -hmm. you know, allowing uh, us to reduce those higher order aberrations. So giving that, you know, patient that could potentially have a refractive lens exchange a little bit earlier now that we have these other options available to us. Do you ever offer a minor corneal treatment for someone who has had an adjustment and the expectation is they'll be better, but for how long? 
Right. I do. I really read them the Riot Act and educate them that this is our last, we're not going to continue to go back and do this every two years. And if I really see a cataract, you know, then I really don't want to do that. But if, the nuts, if I'm not seeing a cataract yet and I'm just getting a little shift, I will tell them that we'll do this once. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think we're getting closer to the next step, which is going to be procedural again. So I try to put that in their mind. And, um, you know, sometimes they'll say, you know what, if you think this is only going to last a couple more years, then why don't we just wait a little bit and now we can use a drop or whatever and, um, you know, eventually do the more definitive treatment, which is taking care of the lens because the lens is the problem. So starting to educate the patient that really it's not your LASIK not working anymore, you know, which they all assume mm -hmm. it's really your lens not working well anymore. I try to be gentle in discussing age, and I'll talk to patients about collecting birthdays. Oh, there are really? Certain, yeah. <laughs> certain predictable changes that can occur. No one wants yes. to hear that you're getting old and your vision is failing. Well, uh, but, the normal change <laughs> yes, over time. Yes, exactly we have, right. Yes, that we can't escape. But yeah, I try. I feel the same way. I don't like to talk about age, and I don't like to talk about money. <laughs> yeah. So if I could avoid those two things and have someone else do that. But there, there is a value issue that is maybe the first derivative of the cost. Um, do you address that? How do you talk to patients about what this could do or what to expect to do in terms of their quality of life? So for some patients, some patients are more handicapped than others, I would say, by having to use reading glasses. And understanding how that particular patient feels about their reading glasses, how much of a handicap it is to them, is really the basis of this whole thing. You know, because if it's not... Uh, of top importance to the patient, it's hard to really move on to the next step of an elective procedure. And then other patients, you know, they come in and this is their chief complaint. I do not want to read reading, I don't want to have to use reading glasses, um, and that's their priority. So spending the time to get to know what their goals are and what their objectives, uh, you know, are is so important. We spend some amount of time trying to do analogous valuations. And by that I mean what is the cost of a family vacation or you and your spouse going for a week somewhere? Uh, and that's joy and it's certainly memorable, uh, but it's there, it's ethereal, and it's gone. For about the same cost as a one-week nice vacation, you can have clear vision every waking moment of every day for the rest of your life. So do you have this conversation and get to know how much their family vacation costs, or is this your refractive coordinator that you've trained to have that? Well, and that's a good question. I mean, the family vacation that includes camping in the National Forest is very different than the one that goes on a cruise in the Bahamas. Uh, but I'll use different analogies. Sometimes I'll get clues from my, uh, uh, from my tech, and they'll say, you know, avid motorcyclist rides a Harley. Mm -hmm. Well, on that one, I'll tell them, it's like, you know, look, I, I have had a Harley, and I spent more than that on chrome for my motorcycle. Right. And you can just see the wife going... Yeah, uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> of course. Yeah, and so did you. Uh, but it, as a practical matter, people are hesitant to spend money on something that they think they should get for free, even if it creates great value. Uh, and I think maybe trying to put some some context on what is the value of good vision. And I find that it does really take a lot of time to mm -hmm. tease this yeah. out of a patient sometimes. Yeah. And so having a well-trained refractive coordinator is key. Using things like the Dell questionnaire, mm -hmm. you know, his uh, updated Dell questionnaire is really helpful to pin down exactly what the patient is like as a person right. and what their goals are. So having a way to make this efficient um, to customize this care for the patient 
you know, I think is, is very helpful. Otherwise, we'd really be in the room with the patient for two hours, getting all this information out of there. So, You're you know, too kind. No, I, I have the watch person outside who kind of like looks in the door, and I know that's my cue. It's like, it's not got to move on. Yeah. But you're right. You try to get the information out efficiently. And a lot of times my staff will come back to me, and they're like, please don't put this lens in this patient. You know, they'll make some recommendations. So everybody being on the same page and having continuing education with staff is so helpful for these these patients uh, that are a little more complex now than just uh, the typical, you know, 2400 dense burnescent cataract with macular degeneration. That's the simple case these days, even though technically it might be, you know, more advanced. But the little nuances of going through this process to really know the patient can be difficult sometimes. Do you talk about risks with the patient? I do. We have yeah. to. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we're we consenting have to. the patient. Well, well, but, but sometimes the consent, uh, that the risks come in the informed consent. And I, I don't read through the entire informed consent with the patient. I mean, I'll tell them at a high level, but mm -hmm. you know, I don't talk about risks that I think are small, but real. And possibly we should spend more time doing that. I don't yeah. go through the whole consent process yeah. either with the patient, but we do. I do sign it with the patient, and they do get a copy of it. But really, you know, we are obligated to even go through some of the little nuances like dysphotopsias, you know, mm -hmm. the potential for all of that and the potential for, you know, having a, to do a lens exchange procedure, you know, and all of that is, is important to mention on some level. Mm -hmm. And it is mentioned certainly in our, in our informed consent, but a lot of patients, as they're so excited about their upcoming procedure, they don't read the fine print. So we do print it out and send it home with them. So, you know, that, that's helpful as well. We do send our patients information ahead of time. I think you're right. I think it's the rare patient that actually reads it like an attorney. Uh, there's kind of like the terms and conditions for the software we have. I mean, I, I truly don't read all that. I just go right to the bottom and go, yeah, no, send me something. It's, it's kind yeah. of, I think it's human nature in some respects. Of, of course, uh, but that was a really good point, though, about sending something to the patient mm -hmm. in advance right. of their visit. You know, so they come more informed. It mm -hmm. makes our discussion easier. Um, and then they can kind of educate themselves. They know a little bit about the options. You know, they understand, uh, even if it's a video or a link that they can be sent in advance, that would be helpful. And we're kind of redesigning that at Bascom Palmer right now just to make sure we're educating our patients better in advance of our visit to make it a bit more efficient. So we have instituted uh, a continuation of telehealth uh, from when we had the you know, COVID shutdown. We had our technicians and our surgery schedulers proactively call patients uh, and even though their scheduled visit had been forwarded up to a date where we knew we could get back in the office or we thought we could at least uh, and then we would have them discuss the options for lens uh, corrections and, and what to expect. Essentially they were prepping the chart ahead of time but it was because they had time we wanted to fill their time you know, fruitfully and, and maybe help the patients as far as understanding and it really impacted our lens conversion to premium lenses mm -hmm. uh, and we've since continued that. So. Every single patient that is sent to me for a cataract evaluation, typically referred from uh, optometrists or from other practitioners, we have a, a, a pre-visit that is a in-person visit, not in person, but it's a, uh, a telephone call, a uh, personal connection, uh, yeah. and that's had a huge impact. Yeah, no, I agree, and that's something, again, that we've learned since COVID. Mm -hmm. So we're doing that with both our LASIK patients as well as our yeah. cataract patients. And a lot of times I'll look at the, I might not be there the day that the patient gets their IOL master and their topography, but I'll do a hybrid visit then and I can review you know, all their measurements and say, you know, I know we spoke about these different lenses and we decided on one of these two and now I've reviewed everything 
and you know, I want to just discuss my final decisions, and I really recommend this lens to you. And we can do that with a hybrid visit. We don't have to bring that patient back again. So I wouldn't have even thought of that three or four years ago. You know. So uh, I think one of the questions that seemed almost like a Forrest Gump type question, but uh, it, it came up and a patient asked me, well, what is a cataract? And this was a patient who was actually a refractive lens exchange patient presumably, you know, he had been told they had cataracts and that's why there was a shift. But kind of said, like, at what point is it a cataract? And at what point is it a refractive lens exchange? And I think the answer now is symptoms. If you are a school bus driver and you are not safe or don't feel safe driving in the morning before it's, you know, light outside, uh, if you are, you know, a professional who requires fine acuity, a dentist who, uh, you know, if they're off by a millimeter, that's... that's Huge, just like it is in ophthalmology. You know, I think that documenting symptoms actually lowers the threshold for Snellen acuities, which we know are not the best indication of functionality and, and visual quality. I've had many patients come into my office uh, as a third or fourth consult about their lens, right. and they'll say, one doctor told me I had a cataract, one doctor said I didn't have a cataract, and I'm so confused, you know, do I have a cataract or not? And so then we go through that whole explanation of dysfunctional lens syndrome and how our mm -hmm. lens hasn't really worked properly for some time, and then you do start to become progressively more symptomatic. It's not something that just pops up one day, and patients, like you said, are very confused by that. But once you explain the process of how the lens loses its functionality gradually and you know, eventually we call it a cataract, mm -hmm. but it's not a discrete point in time, you know, that it's going to be a cataract. So, yeah, explaining that to patients kind of helps them understand it, and then they can kind of see, oh, yeah, you know, I've gradually developed these symptoms over time. So, you know, it kind of correlates with that. And is it time yet? Is it a cataract or is it something that I'm responsible for? Because often it's an economic decision. Right. And that's where it becomes right. a little gray. Uh, yes. And yeah. I, I know I don't have the answer to that, but I know that I've become increasingly willing to operate for what previously would have been higher levels of acuity, better acuities than I would have perhaps maybe 15 or 20 years ago, uh, earlier in my career. Uh, and I think that it's not uncommon now to have at least a Snellen acuity that people would say, well, it's not that bad. But a mm -hmm. patient who you know clearly is not happy with their vision, can't see at night, and can't read unless there's a lot of bright light, and um, it's like, okay, I can make that patient better, uh, and we'll offer that. Yeah, I think we both have patients that were, let's say, 55 years old mm -hmm. with just a little bit of NS, and they glare down to 2080 at night, and they're incapacitated, and right. they cannot function the way they used to function. Right. Whereas 30 years ago, that would have been seen as normal vision, mm -hmm. and now that's not really acceptable in the world that we're living in uh, with the technology that yeah. we have. We don't want to give up our activities. We don't want to stop driving at night. We don't want to stop. When I say we, it's as we as a uh, as a um, nation and as uh, generations go through. And there was a time when I think our parents and grandparents, you know, clearly would modify their activity based on their vision. And I think the you know this generation doesn't want to do that. I want to be able to drive to see my grandchildren. I want to be able to do the things that I, I used to be able to do. And the vision yes. shouldn't be the, the thing that holds me back. Yeah, I can't imagine not being able to drive at night to yeah. go where I want to go. So you know, I think patients just don't want to be limited. Okay, simple question. Do you think that refractive lens change is going to become more common? 
I think it will become progressively more common as technology continues to improve. And as we mentioned before, the rate that technology is improving is so fast, and we just have so many new options and things that make cataract surgery more efficient, more options to make vision more efficient, to free us from some of these crutches that uh, we depend on with glasses and contacts and all of that. So I think the age of cataract surgery or the age of refractive lens exchange will continue to decline, and I hope someday, um, like I said before, we'll be doing a surgery on everyone when they start to become presbyopic, and we won't be dealing with presbyopia any longer and will maintain a full range of vision. I think that that is a very prescient vision of the future. I couldn't agree more and uh, we're seeing ourselves you know head that direction so well, well Kendall what a pleasure. Yes, um, it was fun I, talking about this. Good Great topic it. for sure. Thank you.